we were initially like, oh, what do we need from banks? And turns out banks want to use the same data that we're helping the farmer collect. And if we can, you know, get cozy with the lender, they'll recommend granular. And there were all kinds of situations like that where I wouldn't say we thought the banks were enemies, but we def- we were indifferent to them. And later it turned out they were super important. And so I think, like you say, understanding the map of everybody who's doing business with that farm and how everybody needs to play together is really important. Welcome to Fall Line Field Notes, a podcast that explores the intersection of technology with agriculture and food. We're your hosts, Eric O'Brien and Clay Mitchell. Our guest today is Sid Gorham, who was most recently the CEO of Granular and president of the digital business platform at Corteva. Sid has held leadership positions across a wide range of tech giants over the years, from being COO at OpenTable to CEO of Telefia, which he sold to Nielsen. His entry into the ag tech space began when he was recruited by the soil analysis startup Solum. Under Sid's leadership, Solum transformed into Granular, a SaaS company in the farm management space, which he sold to Corteva in 2017. We first got to know Sid in 2014 when Fallline made its initial investment into Granular. Throughout our conversation, Sid's wealth of experience provides a valuable perspective around how startups can differentiate themselves and compete against larger companies with more resources. As one of a select few CEOs within ag tech to lead a startup all the way through exit via acquisition, his path also illustrates the importance of communicating the nuance of the ag industry and the complexities that accompany it. We begin our interview where Sid gets vulnerable about what drew him to ag tech seven years ago. Right. Well, a couple things. One, my experience at OpenTable was obviously consumer internet, but was selling to restaurants. And I really found that time to be super rewarding because I was selling to restaurant owners and founders who are super passionate about what they do. You know, if you own a restaurant, it's more than a job. Uh, farmers were actually quite similar to that. You know, really committed entrepreneurs for whom this was their everyday obsession. And then the other thing that was important to me I sort of had a mid-career freakout when I was at Nielsen. Nielsen's all about advertising measurement. And I um, realized, woke up one day and said, I hate advertising and why am I spending my life trying to optimize ad placements? Isn't there something that's more meaningful to climate change, more meaningful to the planet, something that I, I could explain to my kids and you know be psyched about myself? And so agriculture sort of checked both those boxes for me in terms of a mission perspective and then in terms of just the character and size of the customer uh, was kind of getting me back into the open table neighborhood of small and medium businesses and committed entrepreneurs. Now, you don't come from agriculture, but one thing that I remember from your early days at Granular is this deep objectivity that you had in going to visit farms and wanting to really understand everything about what made best-in-class operations, best-in-class finance, best-in-class agronomy. And I remember one of the early comments you had is, farmers use weather as an excuse for not doing a lot of planning. And I thought that was incredibly insightful. Right. Yeah, it's funny because Open Table had a lot of the same characteristics where we'd go into a restaurant and we'd say like, don't you want to know what the average time of a four-top table turning over on a Thursday night? And they'd be like, oh, just totally depends where I'm serving, you know, as an appetizer. And I'd say, it can't be, you know, (laughs) you have to be able to average that out. And the same thing was true with farmers. You know, they're just such strong, intuitive decision makers. I think over my time serving farmers, I kind of, we all kind of got to be humbled by just how good their intuitive decision making was, right? And how more often than not, without any numbers at all, they kind of made the right call. Sure, there was room to optimize. And of course, there were years or situations where they whiffed it. But, you know, we all came to sort of 
you know, be humbled by the degree to which they were making the right calls and realize just how hard it was to give them data that would lead them to a different decision than they were going to make anyways, right? You know, we all thought like, oh, if we build you a pivot table of your rents and your, you know, uh, what you're paying per bushel, it'll lead you to, uh, you know, renegotiate or drop fields or whatever. And we would do that and we would come in and think we had done some brilliant data science and they would say, oh, but you don't know that old widow Smith owns that field and I'm waiting for her to pass because then there'll be another 2,000 acres that'll open up. And so that's a loss leader for this. And there was always just another layer of complexity in their optimization that we didn't see in the data. So in, in that context, then, how did you prove that you could add value to their intuition and actually find product market fit? I think Grand Yoda did a good job, partially because of the learning I, I was just describing of sort of not beating people over the head with like, data science is magic, right? Data science will revolutionize what you're going to do every day. And so we sort of modulated the message to be like people plus software is the magic combo and sort of framing it as is the data right or was the person right without the data is the wrong frame. The right frame is people with data. You know, you're so smart and you have such good intuition and you're so experienced at this. Think how if you had the data, how much better you would be, right? And so we definitely didn't, you know, climate got into this territory a little bit early on. We never said the computer will run the farm. You know, right. uh, it was always, you will continue to run the farm. And if we give you the data you need on your phone at exactly the right time and exactly the right format, you'll just be that much better. We get a question a lot from our investors as to, well, how do you sell into farmers? How do your portfolio companies find ways to sell in such a distributed environment? And I think that's something that evolved within Granular. Yeah. And it started out with a relatively high-touch, in-the-field interface, right. like actually getting in trucks, spending time with farmers. But you were able to pivot away from that over time. Why did you start there? And was the intent always to pivot to something that was less costly? Yeah, so we... And this is where I think not coming from farming might have been a, an advantage for us. We knew that learning from the customer was so important. At the very beginning, I said, let's find the smartest, biggest, most professional farmers we can find. And we're only going to sell to them. And that kind of goes against conventional SaaS wisdom, which is start at the middle of the market and work your way up to the most sophisticated guys because that gives you time. To, it's always easier to add features to your product than take it away, right? right? And so we sort of did that, like you described, like in-person selling, super high-touch support with our first, I don't know, 100 customers for sure, just to learn the problem space and learn, you know, design the roadmap and figure out what the product needed to do. And those guys were really generous with their time. And so, yeah, in the beginning, we were very high touch in that way, but that wasn't going to scale. Particularly, you know, those bigger guys were paying a good amount of money because we priced per acre, right? And so it, it was still expensive. But if you went and sold a $40,000 a year customer and it required three trips to Indiana, that was painful. But if you sold a $5,000 dollar your customer and it required three trips in Indiana, that would be insane, right? It yep. just wouldn't work. And so we had to back off and we had to take a lot of the, um, I guess, the selling propositions we learned in the hand-to-hand in-person selling and try to do it on the phone. And that's, you know, San Francisco, there was a SaaS company on every corner, right? And so we could recruit these 
people who had done this before, who had sold SaaS to gyms or to restaurants or to dentists or lawyers or whatever. And they brought that whole skill set of a really well-measured sales process where you, you know, you're like, okay, I'm going to touch them once with an email and then I'm going to call them and then I'm going to text them and then I'm going to send them a PowerPoint and then I'm going to do this and that, that and just sort of mapping out the whole journey to selling and being very scientific and mathematical about it. And so we sort of took that school of thought and that, you know, whatever body of experience and knowledge and tried to meld it with our former, you know, in-person deep touch style and found the happy medium there. And that I think was a non-intuitive approach. You know, if you had told us from the beginning that you were going to assemble a group of 20-something-year-olds in mm-hmm. San Francisco and reach out to farmers across the core of the Corn Belt and sell software to them, we, I think, probably would have said that that's, um, right. that's going to be tough yeah. uh, at, at the very least. And I think you've explained the arc to get here. What was special about sort of the training process or, you know, because it doesn't seem to me that just any company could pull this off. If we hadn't had the in-person selling, you know, forced us to recruit people in regions. So we had to recruit, you know, the farm kid from Indiana who wanted to sell software. So we had that profile in the team. And then those of us who didn't come from farming had been on enough sales calls that we sort of could culture bridge the two cultures. So for sure, we made all kinds of mistakes. And those 20-something-year-old kids, coal-calling farmers, pissed off more than one farmer, right? And so it was constantly a challenge in like pushing them to hit their numbers, but keeping them on a very short leash so that they weren't stalking people on a Sunday afternoon or something, right? I think it's important to remember, as we sit here today, we're at you know, corn prices over $7, famously high food prices, and we're in a commodity boom. You started granular during a much lower period when margins were thin. So as you talk about having you know these kids engage with farmers to sell them a product, it's during one of the really tough times in the market. Now, you yeah. remember, Eric, you bring that perspective to the board meetings and uh, kind of giving a realism for like what a budget for growing an acre of um, corn yeah. soybeans has, which... I don't think the other board members... No, I remember, yeah, I remember very distinctly, you know, discussions around the pricing model for granular and other board members who didn't have ag experience sort of pushing for higher and higher, like, why aren't you selling more value per acre? Don't they understand how awesome this product is? And I think we had to basically illustrate for them, the average farmer in this environment is going to lose money. Right. So... There is no budget for this unless you can show some sort of ROI. And we, as customers, have determined that you know, you've got to put a lot into this product yep. before you begin getting value at. If you can get to that point, then you see the ROI, but it's not immediate. So like, there's a context setting here of, you know, Frank, just as Clay pointed out, this is a hostile environment to right. try to sell software into because the farmers were under siege from all angles. Totally. It's also important to realize, I think, is that the products that we're talking about here or not just a downhill slide. This isn't Snapchat or something right. like that. You know, you put together software that improved in operation, but like other ERP, like there's a break-in period. And that's also quite a bit different. Right. Yeah, and I think that really spoke to the demographic challenge we had, which was, you know, there were a lot of what we were selling into was generational transition on the farm. And so our very common selling challenge for us was son says yes, dad says maybe and son needs to convince dad and we need to help him. And it does require a, a leap of faith, like you were saying. It's not just a 
log into the software and suddenly you make more money. It's a journey and it's a, something where you need to put a lot of effort into it yourself. And so that if you're a native digital native software person, that's still a leap of faith, but one that many people can make. But if you don't use software in many other parts of your life, it's a nearly impossible leap to make. I remember you saying at one point that when you talked about barriers to selling, one of the pieces of feedback you got was that almost everyone that you encountered as a potential customer would say, I get that five years from now, I'll be using a product like this. Yeah. I, I know it, but I'm not ready for it today. Right Now, more than five years has transpired mm. since that comment was made. If we fast forward to you know, your more recent interactions via Corteva Digital, yeah. how much of the market has moved in this direction? I feel like, I'm sure if we had a current the software entrepreneur at the table selling to farmers, he'd be like, or she would say, it's still really freaking hard. Yeah. Uh, but it feels substantially easier to me than it did in when we were doing it six or seven years ago, just in terms of the generational change and the you know, one of the big lynch or unlocks in the whole thing is machine data coming off the machinery in the field. And that's gotten, you know, another turn of the wheel and is substantially easier. And I think there's just more software that farmers want to connect to. So another part of the vision we had was you need your home-based foundational software into which we will integrate your retailer and your grain merchandiser and your agronomist and your seed dealer and da 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 And so you need to have your data and your sort of control panel or your uh, dashboard, and then they will feed into you. And so we would describe that reality and nine out of 10 farmers would be like, huh, what are you talking about? And now I think it's pretty obvious that, that yep. that's required and that's, that's real. Yeah, I think the other thing that has transformed ag, at least in our experience, is the integration of imagery. Yep. into the operations and the decision-making. We saw a whole wave of companies around the same time that we invested in Granular that were centered on gathering the pixels, whether yep. it was through drones or airplanes or satellites. We ended up investing in Planet Labs and you guys ended up doing a deal with them down the road. But it wasn't clear where the money was going to be made in the imagery. But I think it has become clear, Clay, you can comment better, just how much of a revolution that's been and yep. to integrate that into the software. Yep. Yeah, last year, we were looking at um, some of our fields in granular imagery and noticed that where we had applied starter fertilizer, there was less biomass. Mm -hmm. And this seemed like, well, it couldn't be, you wouldn't expect that unless there was something, you had toxic levels of, of fertilizer or something like that. We went back and looked at earlier imagery and it was clearly healthier that we had this weird weather where there was a drought and kind of hit this corner case that agronomically, it's not something I'd ever seen before. But when corn grows too early from being over-fertilized, it's something kind of unique to grasses. It doesn't happen with legumes like soybeans, as I've learned from reading some studies, but you can actually get a lower yield. And this is, I like to think that I would have looked through our data as I, of course, were tracking where everything is placed and what the yields are. And I would have noticed this, but I'm not so sure from the granular insights, yeah. it was completely clear. Huh. And so it was, it was a huge takeaway and really changed the way that we manage our starter fertilizer. I want to jump ahead slightly while we were on the topic of sales, you know, talking about how you had built the sales organization within Granular in San Francisco. If we fast forward into, you know, a couple, two or three years into your stint within Corteva, when you had inherited a larger digital organization that mm -hmm. integrated with Granular, and you were able to observe how they were selling, what did you learn in being part of an established 
you know, ag organization with a large distributed sales force? Was there, did you see them doing things that like, oh gosh, I wish we'd have done it this way? Or did you find that you were bringing innovation to their sales model or was there some sort of hybridization? Yeah, there's definitely hybridization and learning in both directions. It was interesting because I think the whole industry is undergoing, I mean, we, sort of whatever, 23-year-olds in a conference room in San Francisco cold calling with no farming experience might be like, that's a really extreme case. But I think the industry is going through a transition of like how relationship-oriented do you need to be? And I you know, think younger farmers, well, first of all, there's consolidation going on, so there are fewer, bigger farmers, right? And then the younger farmers, I think they value the whole super high-touch relationship thing a lot less than their dads did. And they're kind of, you know, yeah, you're my seed dealer. Please send me the data on why your seed is the best and give me a quote and I'll look at it on my phone while I'm watching my kid's soccer game and I'll text you if I want to buy, you know, seed again this year. And so it's a little bit more of a hybrid offline, online thing, right? And so Corteva was definitely going through, as I think all retailers, all input manufacturers are sort of a how do we sell to the new generation and how do we sell in an offline, online way when we used to be like any excuse to drive your truck over to the farm and shoot the shit with a valued customer is a plus, right? And so I think what we saw with Corteva was this sort of the pioneer sales team and the pioneer brand is super, you know, has generations of, you know, seed dealers are like my grandfather sold to your grandfather type of history in terms of relationship. And so they were trying to figure out how to use digital and how to use data to interact with the younger customers in a different way in the way that they wanted to. And so they had some good amount to learn from us. And then, of course, they just knew every... You know, we were trying to figure out the hierarchy of farmers in some corner of Indiana, right? We would be looking on Twitter and looking on databases, trying to figure out who had who, how many acres, and where did they farm and what did they do? And I mean, Cortava just... They just knew every farmer in America, right? So we could be like, okay, we would send our sales rep for a given territory to his counterpart, and they would just download all this information. And all of a sudden, we knew every farmer in America. So that was just a massive unlock for us because they could say, don't even bother calling Fred. He doesn't even have an iPhone. And his sons are not in the business. It would be like, oh, geez, we've been calling Fred you know, three <laughs> times a week for a year. And so we would just take him off the list. And they'd be like, oh, do you know Bob? And we oh, no, we'd never even heard of Bob. And so there was just a lot of acceleration that came out of that type of on-the-ground, deep understanding of the kind of psychographics of the farmer base. That's really interesting. And it's something that I suspect a lot of startups don't fully appreciate the depth of that kind of relationship mapping that the big companies have. Do you see any newer tools that unlock that capability for startups? You know, Farm Market ID is a company that we work with to you know, help some of our companies. But I'm curious if you've seen other tools emerge out there, or is this really still the domain of sort of the main competitive advantage in some sense of the big guys? I think it's the latter. You know, and interestingly, like we, Corteva didn't use Salesforce, right? And we went and we're like, you're running a massive sales organization. You don't have Salesforce. So when the conversation I was just describing you know, between our rep and their, you know, corresponding territory manager was going on. Our guy would have his laptop open and he'd be furiously like recoding all the leads in Salesforce or whatever. And, and it would just all be in the guy's head. Wow. And so uh, Corteva is like, well, along its journey to adopting technology like Salesforce, but I think it just shows how different the models were. Yeah. I think a lot of startup entrepreneurs dream of the day when they have the opportunity to do a transaction with a Corteva from an M&A 
perspective. Maybe give us a little bit of the background for how that transaction came to pass. Sure. So we were getting ready to raise our Series C. And so you guys were in prior to the B, prior to the B, between yeah. the A and B. Yeah. And we're getting ready to do the C. And you know, it was then DuPont Pioneer, one of the predecessor companies to Corteva that approached us and said, Oh, we've been tracking you and we'd like to invest in your and we hear you're raising around. And we um said no, that we didn't want to get a strategic into the business because it might compromise and exit later, right? We didn't want to not be able to sell to Montana or whomever right. because we had DuPont Pioneer in the company. And so we kind of gave a hard no there. And they were like, oh, well, that's not good. We'd really like to work with you. And so we started exploring not just commercial partnerships, like how could you resell our software or how could we develop some version together that did something different. Or, and um, all of those kind of ended up to be dead ends for one reason or another. Right. And then that just naturally kind of morphed in the, how about we buy you? And sort of like when Montana bought Climate, Montana had a big digital initiative internally, and they wanted to fold that into Climate. And very similarly, Corteva had an effort inside called Incirca. It was a very agronomy-focused software initiative that they had spun up in Iowa. And so the vision that eventually we all came around to was, we'll buy Granular and merge it with Incirca and run that as one entity. So I think a big part of the value creation thesis was not just we're buying this standalone company, but we're putting that together with our internal effort and trying to supercharge the whole thing. Yeah, it had to be something more strategic given where the company was from a revenue traction perspective. This was certainly not going to be an accretive deal to Corteva's or Dupont's earnings at the time. And it wasn't simply explaining the strategic benefits to them that drove price. I remember that you had always a very practical approach to this process where we had a backup to the backup to the backup plan. Mm -hmm. So what were some of the things you were doing in the background to make sure that you didn't get single threaded on this dialogue? Yeah. And I think this is, if your company is in a state of perfection where you can run a, at Telfia, we ran an auction. We hired bankers. We had a whole bunch of bidders. We knew Nielsen was the one who'd want it most, but we had several other contenders and that drove price and scarcity and competition. So that works. But yeah. sort of doing pre-form negotiation with a handful of acquirers with no process and no tension in the system, I think it doesn't often work. Right. And so I think I always had the fundraise as plan A. And I told Cortaba at the time, I don't think you're going to be able to hit the valuation that will satisfy our investors or even less likely hit the timeline. I think we're going to be chatting for a long time and I, might, I need money and I'm going to go raise money. And if I raise that Series C, I'm committed likely to a much bigger number and potentially an independent you know, IPO. Or right. Yeah. IPO. This dialogue is over for now <laughs> and maybe revisited at some point years in the future at a yeah. much higher valuation point. And so I think that sort of keeping the fundraise and that path as plan A and not allowing ourselves to get all just single, like you say, single threaded on the acquisition prospect was key. And then sort of in the camp of you got to be lucky to be good, Dow DuPont, they were going through their merger at the time and there was time pressure driven by that merger. So if DuPont had not 
they bought us the day before the Dow DuPont merger. And if it had slipped today, I don't think the deal would have happened. So there was sort of a huge time forcing function on that was a product of that combination, the Dow DuPont combination. Yep. Serendipity always plays, uh, yeah. plays a role. Yeah. When you were thinking about that exit opportunity as opposed to a financing that we had always planned that this was going to be a you know many-year journey to try yep. to build a valuable SaaS company with tens if not hundreds of millions of dollars of revenue before we would have exit options. So this happened a lot sooner than expected from an investor perspective. But in these M&A cases, there is almost always a commitment required of the team on a go-forward basis. Yeah. How did you think about that both personally and for the team as you were you know, negotiating this deal? Yeah, so that even aside from the requirement to stick around, there was sort of a lot of misgivings on the team about what it would mean for our independent mission and our mission to help farmers to be part of an input company. And sort of we all, myself included, were worried that the software and the data and the sort of whole proposition of granular would be perverted to show for input products that you would open up the software and the right answer would always be buy more Pioneer or buy more. Yeah. Right, right. And so we just didn't want, we were really afraid of that. And so one of the things prior to agreeing to the deal, I really explored that. And with the then CEO of the business, Jim Collins, talked a lot about that. And I got comfortable with it. And after the acquisition and for the next three years, I realized it was really not an issue at all that these input companies are super high integrity. Maybe they all aren't, but Corteva certainly was. And the people who serve their customers, they're so committed to, like I was talking about, the multi-generational sales relationship that they don't over... I mean, I'm sure some of them oversell and I'm sure they're bad actors, but I think there's just a huge amount of commitment to doing the right thing for the farmer. And so we never had any tension within Corteva of like, how can you make granular... um, Whatever, always recommend recommend our products or what have you. Or the other thing we were really afraid of was the misuse of farmer data, where somebody would be like, could you log me into uh, Farmer Fred's account and I can see how much he paid for the Monsanto seed? I'm I'm really curious about that, Sid. As a farmer, what should a farmer look at for a privacy policy? What are the, the concerns a farmer should have? How do you make judgments about who to share your data with? Yeah, well, just to finish the thread on Corteva, like I was worried about that. And again, not even a whiff of that for the following three, almost to the other extreme where I'd be like, there's really interesting, useful, you know, data we could anonymize for you that would help you. And and nobody, oh, everyone, they were more concerned with it than I was. So it was really a positive outcome in that respect. But yeah, I think, you know, we all are guilty of signing these user agreements on our phones or computers without reading them in a B2B environment. I would really read them and make sure, you know, I think it would be rare for a company to go against the privacy policy that they've given their customers. But I think in a lot of cases, customers don't read them. And so I definitely would encourage in this situation to read them and to interrogate the person who's selling to you and make sure you understand it. But I I do think there's so much reputational risk involved in, you know, like we were saying earlier, this industry doesn't give you certainly wouldn't give you another try if you misuse their data. So it's almost like a mutually assured destruction thing where you're just not going to do that. And so I think there's much less of a risk than some people think. And certainly when we started, this was like a red hot issue. And over time, it just sort of uh, faded. And I think people witnessed the companies involved were doing, you know, behaving responsibly and nothing. There weren't big instances that I'm aware of people misuse data. 
What's, what's our rule of thumb, Clay? It's something like a startup has a chance once every seven years with a farmer. You screw up, it's going to be another seven years before right. you get a shot at it again. Right. Yeah, it's a long memory. There are long cycles. When you think back on the granular experience, kind of from start to finish, and you think about the role that your investors play, what are the things that kind of stand out to you as best practices with respect to investor relations with a company and maybe a couple of examples of counterproductive uh, things that investors have done? Well, I thought it was really helpful in our investor base to have people who were just really hardcore tech people and then you guys who who knew the industry and I guess Dow Capital had also done some other farming or food-related stuff. And so they they were sort of, you know, semi-fluent in it or semi-conversant in it. I think there is a yin and yang where you want somebody pushing you to disrupt the industry as boldly as possible. And then you want people who know the constraints within the industry who are cautioning you not to break all the china. And so I, I think it was really helpful to have you there sort of bridging those worlds. And Coastal Ventures, for instance, Vinod very strongly believed that software should run the farm. And so when I met with him, he would always be like, why isn't your software running the farm? Why do we still have agronomists? Why do we still have, uh, you know, why hasn't data science taken over the whole industry by now? And so that's an important push, right? right. And, and he's a very um, provocative uh, investor in the sense that he's always got something to say. And it, as a CEO, it really puts you, it challenges you to confront these like super disruptive, why can't it be bigger? Why can't it be bolder things? But then you need people who've been inside the industry who really understand the constraints. And right. So right. That, could, that could be like super trivial. So I remember having a conversation with the board about seasonality and the sales cycle. And, you know, a SaaS business, you should be selling 365 days a year. And, and I would come in to the board meeting in April and I would say, sales have been turned off. We can't, like, no, everyone's planting. Nobody will talk to us. And, uh, you know, some of our more sort of software oriented, you know, tech investors would be like, what the hell? This is so harder. Uh, <laughs> that's unacceptable. That's unacceptable. <laughs> and it was great to have you there, Eric, to say, well, you know, let me paint the picture for you. The guy is in a tractor till you know, one in the morning every damn day going flat out. And there's no way he's going to, like, be demoing software while, right. he's, while he's doing that. And so, like, just, just sort of getting that, how disruptive do you want to be? Discussion framed in the right way at the board level is really important. And as you then transition into Corteva and were you know, no longer CEO and had management to answer into forecasts to create budgets to live up to. How would you characterize maybe some of the positive surprises of working within a large company and then some of the more negative or more constraining elements of that dynamic? So I would say I learned a ton in the process. And I think there are a lot of super smart people there who know the industry really well and know the regions really well. These are massively complicated businesses. I had no idea how logistically intensive. Of course, we maybe all know this now with them, with the supply chain stuff and the Ukraine and everything. But back then, at least for me, it was not on my radar. And so it was uh, fascinating to be on the inside of a business that complex and was really well managed and, you know, a big machine. Yeah. So when you think about, from the entrepreneur's perspective, trying to compete with a Corteva or enter a market that Corteva is in, given how well run they are, how well they know their customer base, what is the right ground to be competing on as a startup, you know, anywhere in the inputs, you know, from a crop protection seed or digital perspective? Yeah, I think the 
really asking yourself, where do you really need to compete? I think this industry, a lot of the startups have sort of made life a lot harder for themselves by declaring themselves to be enemies of every incumbent in the space from day one. And so I uh, like stealthy, figuring out how you're going to be, where you can complement these farms, everything that they buy needs to work together, right? That's from such the, a huge interactions between everything in the system. I mean, that's one of the yeah. major characteristics of growing crops in a field. Totally. You change one little thing and it affects everything else. Yeah. So you yeah, really need to understand uh, yeah. all the services and products going in. Yeah. Yeah. That was our journey as well. We were initially like, oh, what do we need from banks? And turns out banks want to use the same data that we're helping the farmer collect. And if we can, you know, get cozy with the lender, they'll recommend granular. And there were all kinds of situations like that where I wouldn't say we thought the banks were enemies, but we def- we were indifferent to them. And later it turned out they were super important. And so I think, like you say, understanding the map of everybody who's doing business with that farm and how everybody needs to play together is really important. Now, going back to the synergies between digital crop protection seeds, you know, one of the concepts that kind of became popular a few years ago was the idea of outcome-based pricing, which you really couldn't do without digital, right? And you can't just what, have self-reporting or something. How'd you do, buddy? Right. So is this something that you spent time on? And what do you, from where you sit today, do you think that there's a role for that in ag? Yeah, I think there's a continuum for like, if you take outcome-based pricing as, as like Montana or Bear was talking about at one point, you know, I've sort of lost track on where that whole effort is. But um, there's a continuum with that at the far end. And then at the sort of near closer end would be just using data to prove that your product was effective and worth the price, right? And so I think digital as a sales enablement tool, digital as a tool to prove that your product delivered the value that you said it would and that it earned the price you asked for and maybe even earns a bigger price next year. That, I think, is a huge opportunity in the industry, and that's what we were really working on at Corteva is how do you bring that evidence-based approach to the sales process and have it be much less of a trust me. And so whether we get all the way to risk sharing with the customer, I think there's all kinds of hair on that idea, right, with uh, weather and markets and all the other things that go into what yield is, right? And so I think it'll probably be a long time, if ever, that we get to like full outcome-based pricing, but certainly there's ways to walk down that continuum. So we've covered a lot of ground with respect to Granular and Corteva and sort of history up to date. Curious about some of your thoughts on what's next for you now that you've been, you've been out of Corteva for almost a year? Uh, a little over a year. A little yeah. over a year now. Yeah. So what's on the docket for Sid Gorham going forward? Yeah. So I took the first a year off, completely off, like did not read a single agriculture blog, ignored LinkedIn, just completely goofed off. And I'm now... Getting back into the flow and, and meeting with people, I'm not sure that I have another full-time operating role in me. I think granular, like you said, was seven years, and that's quick in the whatever usual life cycle of startups. That's the uh, early end of when companies would expect to have liquidity events and yeah. things are all going really well. Yeah, and so I don't believe that I want to do another clean sheet startup, but I also, um, it's really all I've done in my career, and I sort of can't give it up either. And so I'm looking for opportunities to advise and invest and work with investors like you guys to sort of stay active as a mentor and an investor and, you know, maybe part-time operator, but I'm not going to do a whole journey myself again. Yeah. And are there particular areas within the ag landscape that are more interesting to you than others? 
I think like everybody, I'm really interested in the movement towards regenerative and also the movement towards new types of food and sort of alternative proteins and ways, I think, sort of a catchway too, where the thing that you know best is actually the thing you know best and least want to go. You know, I could be most helpful to a software startup that's trying to sell to farmers, but I'd like to actually be more at the food end of the, or at the fintech end of the side of the industry. And I actually also have a big passion for oceans and that whole side of food and agriculture. And I'd love to um, see if there are opportunities to apply ag tech concepts and experiences I've had to what people call oceans tech. Um, yeah. And so I'm looking actively at that space as well. Great. Great. When you think back to the experience you've had thus far, if you could go back in time to the Sid Gorham that was either maybe even running Telethia, but certainly, you know, running granular with all of the wisdom that you now have, what advice would you have given yourself back then? Well, I think one thing that we've touched on a little bit is sort of the entrepreneurship journey is often going to end. You hope it ends with an acquisition and with you spending a few years as an operating executive in the acquiring company. And so I think that's happened to me twice now. And I think I was a little smarter at it the second time. I would be yet smarter if I had to do it again. And I think sort of, I would urge entrepreneurs to really think about that part of the journey as a positive and as a learning experience and as part of the journey, as opposed to indentured servitude where you're miserable and you can't wait to get off to do your next startup. Because you learn so much about the industry from that acquiring company. And you learn, I think it helps you build better startups if you know sort of what, you know, $50 billion revenue company looks like and how it works and how innovation happens. And I think it helps you understand what you are building and how it might plug in to a company like that and an exit. So uh, I guess maybe not as profound a piece of advice as you were looking for, but I think sort of I would urge entrepreneurs to think about acquisition as sort of not a moment in time, but, you know, the second phase and trying to be as ready for that and as good at it as possible. Yeah, right? almost like a grad degree. After right, exactly. You, uh, yeah. Graduated from, yeah. from yeah. undergrad. Yeah. And then I just, maybe I've done like from restaurants to telecom to farming. I think there's like one of the big lessons of my career has been about domain knowledge and how building team, you know, how you can be a generalist leading a business, but you need to get that right mix of domain knowledge and generalist, you know, uh, functional expertise within the companies and sort of for me, the most fun part of being a CEO or founder is building the team and leading the team. And sort of, I think some startups in agriculture aren't as deliberate or as thoughtful as they could be about like, where do I need the domain expertise and where do I need the functional expert and how do I get that chemistry right? And how do I get that mutual respect going? You know, how do I get the Stanford PhD data scientist to respect the former John Deere dealer salesperson in Indiana. And how do you get those uh, cultures and personalities to click? Because they just are coming from very different places. But I think to be successful in this industry, you need to be able to get them in the same company playing well together. Sid, as we sit here today, we're talking to you obviously as a success story. But if we unwind and go back to when you started at Granular, I mean, the odds are very low. You know, most people who start software companies don't have the outcome that you have. Yeah. There's an incredible contrast from where we sit. Farmers are the most risk-averse people on earth. The People think of it as being risky because you've got weather risk and price risk, but the decisions farmers make as it, when it's studied by, there are a lot of classical studies in developmental economics, whether you're in a developing country or whether you're in a developed country, 
farmers are incredibly risk averse. Right. And we're, we sit at the intersection of that, dealing right. with both. And so I'm curious, in your personality, do you just always take big risk in everything you do? Is this just, were you like born into that? Is it something that like is part of your daily life? Well, we've skied together. <laughs> <laughs> I think I might know the answer okay. to that. I don't know where I am on the spectrum of risk taking, but my parents are both kind of small town entrepreneurs. So I think a lot of people say that that kind of comes in, in families. I've just spent most of my career in companies like this. And so it, one thing I always say is being an entrepreneur in the Bay Area is it's actually not that risky because, you know, the biggest risk you're playing that you're dealing with is they're going to waste a bunch of your career into an idea that doesn't work. Nobody's going to think you're crazy for taking a swing. Right. And yeah. that, that, you know, people talk about why is Silicon Valley so unique and I guess it's less unique now than it, it did a few years ago. But I think that is so core to the, the DNA here. The idea that you can come to a job interview with five successive failed companies on your resume and the person's going to be like, cool, what'd you learn? You know, I think that's just always been part of my mindset, but I think that it's to some extent less me and more in the water out here, mm-hmm. right? um, which is what makes this such a fascinating place to live and work. Oh, thank you, Sid. Sure. Yeah, Sid, really appreciate your time today. This has been a super conversation. Yeah, really fun to talk to you guys. Good to catch up. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening to this episode of Fall Line Field Notes. We're your hosts, Clay Mitchell. And Eric O'Brien. If you enjoyed this episode and want to learn more about agriculture and the future of our food system, please visit us on the web at fall-line-capital.com slash fieldnotes. You can link to our other podcast episodes and read our latest thoughts on the cutting edge of farming and technology.